0: Well, well. We meet again. Welcome back. <laughs> it's been a while. In person this time as well, actually. For the first time, actually. Yeah. It was always remote before, wasn't it? I felt we missed something by being remote, you know? The chemistry.
1: Oh, completely different.
0: Yeah. Um, no, it's good to be back in person after quite a wait.
1: A sabbatical?
0: Uh, what are you calling it? Um, I'm g'ing up the crowd, I think, by okay. keeping the audience on tenterhooks.
1: An anticipatory wait, yeah. Nice. No, yeah. right. So this is season two?
0: Season two, episode one of an undisclosed number. We don't know how many there'll be. What, seasons? No, episodes this season. <laughs> we need to try and keep things more regular if we can. Yeah. The listeners were furious. Um, they were call- I was getting some emails calling for... For the return of you the Gross well. Domestic Podcast, yeah. yeah. Inundated.
1: The amount of times people
0: look at me say, Hey Joe, great pod, when's the next one? Seriously, we're waiting. In a strange way I get frustrated and would like my conversations to be about other things, but yeah. it does get the message across. Probably should do one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're here now. Yeah. So um, first, shout out to to listeners who got in touch. Annabelle in Oakham, she said she listens to these on repeat all the time, Um, is excited for the next one. Well, here we are.
1: Thanks, Annabelle. Yeah.
0: Um, And Christopher, from as far away as Belfast. (laughs) International. Yeah, we are international. Said, loving the pod, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot, Christopher. Thanks, Christopher. Um, Right, let's get started, Joe, shall we?
1: Well, I was thinking for those that are new to season two might not understand the format. Uh, well-grooved format that we have. So the idea is that we take current affairs, interesting current affairs, and dissect them and place them into the syllabus of the A-level economics course. And there are four parts. There is lower sixth and upper sixth, and then there's microeconomics and macroeconomics. So the first topic I th- thought we should talk about is for lower sixth microeconomics, it's about COP26.
0: Okay, so this is to do with climate change. What is COP26, Chris? Uh, is it the Council of the Parties? No. What is it? I should know this, something of the parties. Convention? No. Oh, no! Help me
1: out. Conference. Conference, conference of the parties. At the party. And it's the 26th edition, and the main focus is, as you know, all about climate change. And it made me think, because I often try and act like an econ, like Homo economicus, sometimes, just see what they would do. And I was thinking, how would they react to all the news and all the the information, all the talks we're hearing about climate change. What would an an econ
0: do? Okay, I love this. So you're taking rational decision making of consumers? Are we talking about
1: consumers? Yeah, just consumers.
0: And you're applying it to a kind of market failure or the problem of climate change. So you're almost taking like two two topics and sticking them in a big melting pot. Yeah,
1: so I'm I'm pretending to be this perfectly rational being that only cares about maximising my utility. So how would I approach
0: climate change? Well, you're only interested in your own private benefits and your own private costs. I am. So you would act with reckless abandon <laughs> towards towards the environment. You wouldn't. You wouldn't care two hoots for it, would you?
1: Well, the cost to me. Are only ex- only bad only high if I experience a flooding or a drought or a smog or whatever, isn't it? Okay. But so if, if you lived
0: in the Seychelles, is it the Seychelles that are or the Maldives? The Maldives are very low lying, aren't yes. they? If you lived there, then maybe you'd you'd feel particularly exposed to the problems associated with it. But would you still think my purchase of you know this product, this good or service? is going to raise sea levels that bit closer to my home.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, well realistically, you or me, whatever, eating meat and polluting and throwing away plastic and stuff, would we'll have a very small impact, individual impact on the sea level. So I'll probably think, well, I'm only gonna raise the sea level by 0.0001 millimeter, so yeah, it is worth me doing all that. So imagine a world of econs. cons mm. Do you think it would just be this, Th- hot mess of just.
0: I think we'd have a world of free riders. I think it's like collectively everyone would think of it almost as being a situation where, well, if everyone else amended or changed their consumption ah. habits, then I'd benefit. So why? But my change in in consumer habits won't have an impact. So why should I change?
1: Yeah. If you're going to give up meat and stop driving
0: your car, then it means I can. I suppose. Yeah. But weirdly now, when you look at it in the real world, we're, we're actually seeing a lot of, of action being taken by, by businesses trying to sell their products, where they're clearly making efforts to, to be more sustainable, as a result, probably more as a, as a result of consumer pressure than of government regulation.
1: Who was it that said, um, the business of business is business? That phrase? Is it? <laughs> Tell I mean, me. <laughs> I think it's about like corporate social responsibility. So the idea, oh, we're helping the community by giving them this ten thousand pounds whatever. That actually the reason why they're doing that isn't because they want to help out, the reason why they're doing that because they want to look good and therefore people then go to that business more. Shareholder return. Yeah. Okay. So is actually they don't care about the environment, they're doing it because consumers care about the environment and they ultimately care about consumers.
0: Yeah. There's the other quote. It's not through the benevolence of uh, the shoemaker. um I baker, can't remember baker it. and someone else. Yeah. So there's that Adam Smith quote around you know why businesses do what they do and it's always profit motivated. So you could argue, yes, these changes are occurring, and yes, it's as a result of consumer pressure. But in a weird way, isn't that the invisible hand doing exactly what it's meant to do? The
1: invisible green hand.
0: The invisible <laughs> green hand. Yeah okay Is
1: last one uh, is, is that quick enough do you think is the green hand invisible green hand strong enough to enact enough change in business behaviour to solve climate change
0: you know I hate expressing personal opinion but my personal opinion on this one is no um, I worry that that that's too little too late but I love that it is getting seems to be getting on the agenda more um, both in terms of government policy and and in terms of what businesses are taking notice of. So you need the invisible green hand and a big governmental
1: yeah. white, white hand.
0: Yeah. Blue hand. Absolute blue. classic economists answer that. It's not one or the other, something in the middle. Um, oh Right, let's move on because we're trying to do a nice kind of, trying to keep things a bit shorter and sharper this uh, this season 2
1: listening so, listening to um listener feedback
0: that's it yeah constantly improving uh, becoming more efficient so theme 2 I chose this one i saw in the news the other day that in the last year house prices in the uk have jumped by 9.9 let's call it 10% they've jumped by 10% which is a huge amount um because that makes up an enormous amount of people's wealth. So I was thinking to myself, well, what's the impact of this this house price rise going to be on the economy?
1: My, I know it's an audio feature, but my face is grimacing because I'm not one of those with a house. So my wealth mm. hasn't been impacted by this house price increase. Yeah, okay,
0: so let's, we can come back to that. I think okay. we should come back to that, definitely. Sorry. Um. No, no. It's, I mean, it's important, and the likes of, of Stiglitz, Krugman would be would be right on your side, saying this is a problem. But let's go let's go traditional theory. Okay. Here's what I'm. You, my theory on this, that ties into the A level. Average house price in the UK is about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. I've seen. I thought it
1: was two fifty three one one last time. Oh,
0: you got your finger on the pulse. So, um. A rise of 10%, that that adds to the wealth of those people who own those houses, a significant amount, and therefore is going to really you know, give them confidence in their spending, is gonna boost consumption levels, and is then gonna to lead to all the economic growth that comes with that through an outward shift in aggregate demand uh, and the analysis around that. So my premise is that that's going to boost spending in the economy. Um, whether we need that right now is an interesting idea. We've got inflation on the rise a little bit, perhaps. Uh, we've got relatively low levels of unemployment. At the same time, we do seem to be slowly, more slowly than, than competing countries, uh, slowly recovering from from a slow growth associated with COVID, or sorry, decline associated with COVID. So,
1: so that's to say the wealth effect What you have is worth more, therefore you're more likely to buy that iPhone because your house is worth 50 grand more. That's the
0: premise of it, yeah. Do you think that's real? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, people people know that it's not as though someone can just sell their house in order to fund their spending habits at any time. So it's not liquid wealth. Mm. Um, you know, it's, They tend to be assets that, that are held for long periods of time and there's a lot of cost associated with buying and selling them. So does it contribute to a huge amount of consumer confidence? I don't know. Um, it's an interesting one. What I do know, though, is that when you look at their value against people's incomes, it does dwarf it. Mm. The average household in the UK earns £30,000. If you talk about the average house price being £250,000, then a 10% jump in that is essentially giving a household you know, as much wealth as they, they earn in a single year. And most households only save 5% of their income anyway. So it would take 20 years to save the amount that house prices have just jumped this year. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's a huge sum.
1: So from personal experience, would you be more inclined to spend, given you are a homeowner?
0: No, but that's because I'm tight. <laughs> You know now I love saving. That's yeah. all I do. That's what I live for. Yeah. Withdrawing from the circular flow of income is, is one of my biggest pastimes. <laughs> I hear you. MPC
1: is low.
0: Yeah. yeah. But I guess it depends on your, on your income, doesn't it? I don't know. So but that, it made me think, right, are those the wealth effects yeah. um, that we should be seeing? But then also, like you say, the impacts of that are going to be really... Well, firstly, they're going to be regionalised, And also, you could argue, well, is this actually just going to contribute towards more inequality? Um, for those people who either own homes for whom their wealth's increasing versus those who don't own homes who perhaps their rental rates might be increasing their cost of living is increasing and actually their ability to buy a house is becoming you know more distanced
1: yeah it's getting further and further and further away isn't it yeah when you think we look at house prices over time you look at earnings over time the gap between the
0: two is definitely increasing yeah so maybe it does come back to that almost that argument of, well, are we chasing the right thing by saying, well, this will drive spending and growth, or is it, you know, perhaps endemic of a, a more structural problem within within the UK? I don't know. I don't know.
1: Wealth effects realised, though, it's quite, a, it's quite a nice one to see the theory in action, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Right, should we move on to theme three?
1: Theme three. Theme three is upper sixth, so 17, 18-year-olds talking about microeconomics, and... I was reading The Economist the other day, as I do, and I saw an interesting article about Ford and GM. So two giants of motoring in America and they're both fighting for the electric car market. And I thought it brought some nice ideas from that side of the course. So you can talk about dynamic efficiency, which is where they're using their profits to reinvest and improve the products. Talk about the degrees of competition in that market.
0: Well, they do need to improve the products, don't they? Because it's kind of it's quite an infant industry mm. in the scheme of things. I know people will say electric cars have been around a long time. All our listeners will be tweeting that in now, but they're not as long as you know a combustion engine. Yeah, and also so they are new, and they're developing in quality, yeah. and the infrastructure around them is developing.
1: It's quite amazing to see the rate of development, actually. Like you can see. The each new electric car that's released seems to have a bigger range, quicker acceleration, etc.
0: Like Mm. Before your very eyes, you can see the improvements in the electric car market. And there must be huge sums of money that are going into making that happen. So those sums of
1: money, you can't get back. So that brings in another nice topic of sunk sunk costs. costs. The idea that these costs are retrievable. They spend millions and billions on research and development trying to make a better battery or a better car. In the hope that they're going to get it, they're going to recoup all that when they um, when the product comes to market.
0: So that essentially is you know that's them trying to or trying to generate some type of dynamic efficiency.
1: How can you? Question for you. How could you increase dynamic the level of dynamic efficiency? How could you get them to be more innovative? How could you get them to spend more of their profits?
0: Well, can you? I mean, shareholders can, they can ask for it. You know, it's something where you'd hope that shareholders see, well, here's a really big growth area in the future. So that's something we should perhaps be investing in now rather than, you know, trying to collect and recoup high returns in the short term. The government can do it in terms of offering tax breaks for research and development if you're going for a more interventionist approach. Um, you can incentivize. even entrepreneurs can be incentivized by whatever it is that the board agree uh, in terms of their, their repayment package you know, as opposed to perhaps a, a more short-term profit-satisfying approach, the incentive structures could be over that longer term where there's an incentive then to invest in the longer term.
1: We were talking today actually <clears throat> about the, the use of patents and innovation mm. and the idea that if you know your, your innovation is going to be patented, patented, I think tomato is it tomato. Art-hood.
0: Well, I'd say patented. I assume the man from Derby would say patented. But <laughs>
1: so it, knowing that all your innovation is going to be your innovation is going to be patented. That does feel right, actually. Patented. Knowing that your innovation is going to be patented is going to incentivise you to do it because then as soon as you've got the patent, you can then you're the only one that can produce that. You then got a competitive edge or a mini monopoly. Again. You
0: have a monopoly, don't you? But it's a monopoly that you've essentially earned, or you'd say they've earned that through developing that new product and the protection of those property rights or the, the promise that your pro- those property rights will be protected mm. is what creates the incentive for the innovation in the first place.
1: I remember um, Apple and Samsung would do this all the time. They're always constantly filing out for patents for a, all different types of bit on the phone. Just so, they can, just so the other person can't do it and therefore they get the edge over that way.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things that actually, you know, the, like, the sorts of books like Why Nations Fail <coughs> would write about is they'd say, actually the protection of those property rights and a well-functioning criminal justice system to enable the protection of those cro- property rights is, is what's gonna actually drive growth in the entire economy because it drives that innovation. Um,
1: Question is, if you give them the patent for too long, then it will stifle innovation, possibly.
0: Yeah, and come at the expense potentially of consumer welfare, yeah. because they will be getting charged high prices in the meantime.
1: Yeah, but the, um, the car market, the electric car market's one to watch out for. Yeah.
0: You, you're a petrol
1: guy, aren't you? Petrol head. Uh, I'm not passionate about cars. No. Sorry, you are a combustion engine I own. am. owner. Yes, yeah, I okay. am. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Ever thought about switching?
0: I have, it's too expensive for me at the moment, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm I'm. hoping or expecting that through these improvements, and through the investment, that it will become more affordable. So I'm not jumping in at it yet, mm. which I know goes against my green credentials. So I need to sort it out sometime, at some point I need to dip my toe in that water. Yeah. Interesting, though. That's my Wonder... involvement in the invisible green hand again. Yeah.
1: My involvement, I don't think I'm not touching the green, invisible green land, I don't think. I'm just cycling around everywhere, am I?
0: That's, that's pretty green. Yeah? yeah?
1: Yeah, I'm not buying petrol,
0: That so that helps. Yeah, yeah. opportunity cost. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, let's move on, last one. God. Theme four, I saw a article this week. You sound excited. I am <laughs> excited, because this is about steel, oh. uh, and it's about trade. So, and, and the article's about, it's about the relationship of the UK and the EU and the US with regards to, to trade, and particularly trade of steel. So I'm, I'm going to read you verbatim a bit the, the first bit of this article. It said, the UK has been left behind, according to steelmakers, uh, after the US agreed to end a trade war uh, over items that included whiskey and Harley Davidson's, but it was mostly about steel. President Biden has signed a deal to end tariffs on steel imports from the EU which were imposed by his predecessor, Donald Trump. So Trump put in place steel tariffs on both the EU and the UK. A tariff being a tax on imports. Thank you. So the agreement does not cover exports from the UK. So Biden ended this problem with the EU, but has... Uh, kept these tariffs existing with the UK, putting British steel makers at a disadvantage. Trade body UK Steel said a deal for British producers was sorely needed. The tariffs they came into force in 2018. They nearly halved British steel ep- exports to the US at the time. Uh, and the US is the second largest market for British made steel. But the new deal will put UK producers at a competitive disadvantage compared to European rivals who have now got this new deal with the US. Um, so I read that and thought, wow, that's going to have massive impacts on, on trade.
1: Mm. So you're, you're, in, you're in America, you want to buy some steel. Before, you saw UK and EU steel and they were the same price?
0: Yeah, they were, well, I mean, you, same tariff. Yeah, same tariff in terms of implications of importing them, exactly the same. Whereas now, there's a significantly different cost in Mm. terms of importing them, in that the cost of importing EU steel has been lowered, whereas it's remained high for the UK.
1: So now you're thinking, which steel I'm going to buy? I'm going to buy from the EU instead. I'm not going to buy from the UK. So therefore, those in the UK are thinking...
0: We're at a significant disadvantage. So the the things that jumped out for me here was this is trade creation and trade diversion, which are, are terms that... I think cause a little bit of confusion within the syllabus actually, mm. um, I think they mystify a few people. So I looked up what the definitions of them are. Um, firstly, trade creation, uh, it is the increased trade that occurs between member countries of trade blocks following the formation or expansion of the trading block. Um, so the removal of trading barriers basically allows greater specialisation, so greater utilization of of, of the rules of kind of comparative advantage so ricardo would be a big fan of of trade creation that's what we want and the creations occurred between us and eu in this instance yes i mean they're not they're not a kind of explicit trade block but there's a free trade agreement there so yes that's that's the existence of trade creation and trade diversion definition of that it occurs when tariffs or when tariff agreements cause imports to shift from low-cost countries to higher-cost countries. So that's essentially a movement away from the benefits of comparative advantage.
1: So if the UK were cheaper than the EU, then switching, because of this tariff being removed, switching from the UK to the EU would be an example of trade diversion. It's been diverted away from low-cost UK to higher-cost EU.
0: Absolutely. Mm. And it's... Yeah, it's a it's it's something that always pops up when people talk about trade blocks because trade blocks the the implementation of free trade agreements or free trade areas, obviously they're looking to reduce trade barriers. If there's an external tariff, or if it creates flows in trade where there are losers, or where actually perhaps trade is moved or production is moved to to areas where it's higher cost in terms of production. Then at the same time, we've got trade diversion. And usually, you do end up with a bit of both. Mm. Um, so it's it's something that I immediately jumped at, particularly when I read that last sentence of this article that was saying uh, it put UK producers at a competitive disadvantage. Um,
1: so what's going to be the impact of this trade diversion? What's the impact of the US not buying from the UK anymore?
0: Yeah, and that's the the really important bit, I guess, which is... I mean, obviously for the EU, it's beneficial. Hmm. You know, they're going to have increased trade, um, larger markets to sell into. It's probably going to generate more employment, more growth there, all the typical things we associate with low tariffs. The UK, quite the reverse, potential shrinkage of an industry. And I know people think, oh, UK steel industry is, is something from a bygone era. You know, it, it, was, it had its heyday in the, the 70s and the 80s. But um, it's still a big industry. They still employ close to, I had a look, it, it's close to 50,000 people are really? in UK steel, so it's still a large industry. That's more than we have listeners. Uh, not, not by season the end one, of this season. Season yeah, one. Season one. Wait until we see the averages going through it. So, um, no, it's still, it's still a large industry. So that, you know, the, the, the halving of, of UK exports of steel to the US it's going to have a really big impact on that industry, it's going to impact on output, it's going to therefore impact on incomes in the UK. So you're looking at you know, essentially an inward shift of aggregate demand in the UK and everything that comes with that.
1: Yes, and some nice, nice structural unemployment there.
0: Absolutely. And those steel
1: workers are going to be, have skills that aren't required in the current labour market, so.
0: Yeah, so depending on the mobility of, of labour and the availability of jobs elsewhere, you know, that could, lead, that could cause cause more long-lasting problems. Mm. So that was that was the thing that jumped out to me.
1: A, well, you've managed to do it again. Two beautifully stark examples of the syllabus in action. It's as it you know. Well, that's what we're all about. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you've done it better than me. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. You were macro focused. Maybe macro is easier to find in the real world, or you're better at finding it. I don't know, but no.
0: Should we switch it? Do you want to switch it up next week then? Is that what you're implicitly getting? I do, yes. Okay. I'll,
1: do, I'll do theme two and theme four, so the macro ones, and I'll find some equally stark and okay. clear examples for our, uh, for our listeners.
0: Before we close, I need to ask you a question. I got asked this by a student this week. Go on. What's your single favourite topic to teach?
1: In economics? Yes. Oh, okay, because I, you know teach a few things. Um, that is an excellent question because obviously I'd love teaching it all. The other day, I, I would say monopolies because they know the cost curves, they know the revenue curves, they I put it together straight away and they went, whoa, don't get it. And then we talked about it and then one of them, quote, this was beautiful, said, it, what looks so complicated is actually really easy to understand. Perfect. And
0: that that was a was a beautiful moment that's my that's the thing I like about economics most I think is that once it clicks oh, you know that level of understanding is then really hard to shake off and I, I really like those moments where where things click for classes so hmm. Good question. Right. yeah um, great right well that's us season two season two episode one begun done right well uh, I'll see you next month Yeah. <laughs>
1: Ha, 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 ha.